The following message is from the 2014 IBCD Summer Institute, Making Peace with the Past. We really appreciate you for coming, and you are the remnant who remain to the very end. And I know that there are many things everyone has to do today and had to do the last few days. Some of you have been here since Monday. And just as the folks have worked very hard to put this on for us, the volunteers and our staff, but I know for you to sit and listen, some of you have probably listened to 30-something hours of teaching or more in the last week. I'm very thankful that the Lord has put it into your hearts to be here and to keep away from these distractions which can so easily entangle us. And let me pray as we begin this last session. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a good and gracious God and that you are mighty, you are kind, and you are skillfully working a tapestry of your will in our lives in ways we cannot fully comprehend. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now in this last hour to gain much from your infallible word, a word which is also sufficient to help us with our spiritual problems. We seek your help. We seek your wisdom as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. I know that Steve has already used the example of Naomi a couple of times and her bitterness in Ruth. And I'm going to camp out there. And there are two things I'm going to do trying to help equip you some of you, this could be, you feel like Naomi today, and I hope this will minister encouragement to you. Many of us know Naomi, or Mr. Version of Naomi, and while a lot of our teaching on biblical counseling is topical, and sometimes that's of necessity where you bounce all over the place, I think it's also lovely in a counseling session to focus on a passage of Scripture, maybe supplementing elsewhere, and especially in the Old Testament, we have a story and can spend a whole session going through that with someone and trying to help them. And to see a connection between where they are and where this character is in the Word of God. And you've probably heard people come in and say, more or less like Naomi, the Lord has dealt harshly with me. And you already know her story. She's been through a lot. In verses 1 through 3, there was a famine in the land. She and her husband Elimelech leave their home with their two sons. And then her, her husband dies. Then her husbands marry Moabite women. I mean, their, their sons marry Moabite women, then they die. And the scene we're going to focus on at the end of the passage is as she returns home many years later, she is an afflicted woman. And we have afflictions sometimes, and Steve's done such a wonderful job with his various buckets. Sometimes people have hurt us. But I think some of the hardest afflictions are the ones in which we participated. We feel like, I made a wrong turn in life, and my life's all messed up because of this decision I made as a young person or years ago. I didn't take that job I should have taken. I didn't major in what I should have majored in in school. I regret how I parented my kids. It was all law, no grace. And, and we can look back. And, and sometimes there's a temptation to have such regret over the past, especially when we've been part of that, 
almost to get the idea, God is done with me. There's really nothing else for me to live for. And, and often it's a mixture between the different buckets, right? It's some things that have been done to me, but also some things that I have done. And, and Naomi comes to us as a helpless woman. And another thing I want to do as we go through this, and you had something passed out to you, don't read it yet, but I want to go through an actual case of an individual that I can use with permission, who is kind of a male version of Naomi. And when he came to us, he was very similar to where Naomi is in this passage. And it is very hard, you know, counseling depressed people, people with deep regrets over the past is difficult. You can't just say, well, go read Steve's book or now listen to the audios and it'll all be okay. These things are deep and difficult to deal with. And one thing that isn't in the text that I'm going to try to draw out is, well, how would you counsel Naomi? What would you say to her at the end of Ruth chapter 1? How would you address her? And we're going to use the example of this other guy. The context of the book of Ruth, this is in the days of the judges. These are bad times. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. There is a need in Israel, and I think a very important part to understand the book of Ruth and where it fits into Scripture is Naomi as being a woman who is alone, a woman who has lost everything, a woman who still believes in the Lord, but her faith is so weak. It's not just a story of an ordinary family. It's a story that really is a reflection of the condition of Israel at that time. And one level, she knew God, but her faith was so weak and, of course, what does Naomi need? And most of you probably aware that the central character in the book of Ruth isn't the person for whom the book is named. The central character is Naomi, because in the end, when finally it all gets better, and you know how it ends with Boaz and the baby, and what's the last word in the book of Ruth? David. But it's Naomi who is redeemed. Naomi has a redeemer, the women declare at the end. It came through Ruth. But it's not just about this ordinary family getting redemption. It's about Israel gaining redemption. Israel was in the wilderness, spiritually speaking. Israel was in a famine, spiritually. And through the book of Ruth and through the events and what seems to be a very ordinary family, God is going to bring a redeemer for his people through Ruth, Boaz, Obed, David. And... This also gives us something of how we look at the Old Testament. How do, you, how do you study the Old Testament? How can you use Old Testament narrative for people? Uh, we need to understand it in its context. That's one thing, just what's going on here. Another factor that's very important is not just to make these into moral stories. You should trust God more, or you should be like David and not be afraid to fight the giants in your life. That The Old Testament is about redemption primarily, isn't it? Jesus, at the end of Luke, in chapter 24, with his disciples. He went through the Old Testament and shows how it points to him. Now, in Ruth, you've got this concept of a redeemer. You don't have to go to seminary to understand the fact there's more going on here than just an individual family. That it's a book about redemption that comes in Christ. And that's, that's really underlying all of it. But there's a third element as well, and that is these things do apply to us now. The New Testament tells us Repeatedly, just uh, one place is Romans 15, verse 4. It says, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And so we're not limited in our counseling to 
the New Testament and the Psalms, or the Proverbs. The entire Scripture is written for our instruction as those of us upon whom the end of the ages have come. And these things are relevant for us, even though our circumstances are different. Like you're interpreting Ruth, and you say, well, they lived in the promised land, and there was a famine in the promised land, and famines happened when they were disobedient to the covenant. And Deuteronomy warned, so they must have been disobedient to the covenant. And the United States of America is not in covenant relationship with God, and so we can't necessarily determine that because it hasn't rained in California lately that somehow we've broken covenant. We're not in covenant nationally or as a state or a region with God in that way. And that there are overriding principles. Today, we are God's royal priesthood, holy nation. We as the church are that. And we too, as churches or as families, can go through times of spiritual decline. We too can make errors and major life decisions. We too can be affected. Uh, one thing, even in the beginning of the book, is we des it describes how Elimelech takes his family out of Bethlehem, the house of bread, in the promised land, to go into the pagan land of Moab. Did he talk to his wife? Did Naomi have anything to do with that? Did she nag him into doing it? There's no bread here. We've got to go. We're not even sure. But they shouldn't have been there. They should have stayed in the promised land. They went anyway. It didn't go well. But in spite of that, in spite of the fact she and her husband made a horrible choice, the Lord is able to show loving kindness to his people even when they fail. So just reading in verses 19 to 22, this is when Ruth and Naomi are coming to Bethlehem. And so they both went till they came to Bethlehem. When they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Naomi makes this stirring entrance into Bethlehem. And we know she's been gone, it says in verse 4, for ten years. Originally it said they'd gone to sojourn in the land of Moab in verse 1. And it makes me think like 27 years ago, I came to sojourn in Southern California. I was going to come to Westminster Seminary, stay for a couple years, and then go back to the promised land of Texas where I love to live. And what was meant to be a two-year sojourn has become a 27-year pilgrimage in Southern California in God's providence. Well, they went for two years, but rather than it being a temporary expediency to survive, Moab became their home. But as she comes back, the women are, are shocked at her appearance. Is this Naomi? Uh, it's like you go to your high school reunion. 25-year reunion, 10-year reunion. And they see you and they say, you haven't changed a bit. And then they whisper to their friend, boy, has she aged. <laughs> well, Naomi is a sad picture. As Steve mentioned already, Bitterness can affect us physically. And she's ready as she walks into town to go to the DMV and get a, a name change on her driver's license. My name means pleasant, 
but my life is not pleasant. I want to get renamed. Call me Mara. It's used in the Old Testament, the bitter waters that Israel could not drink. And you know, normally in the Bible, a name change is an upgrade, right? Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel. But in this case, her life has experienced a major downgrade. And we would say today, and perhaps you could even get out your DSM-4 or 5 or something, and say, I think this woman may be depressed. And she is. Uh, maybe her serotonin levels are off. I'm not sure. But they might be. But her problem is, and Charlie Hodges, in his, he did last year in the spring, talked about how depression is so often caused, it's really just sadness. Sadness over loss. She doesn't have a chemical imbalance. She's lost a lot. She's lost her husband. She's a widow. She's lost her sons. And for a woman in that community, especially, having men to take care of you, and, and another aspect is having a future. In verse 11, when she's encouraging Ruth and Orpah to go back, she says, why should you go back with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? And you know, the big concern in the book of Ruth is, especially before the coming of Messiah, is you want your family name to go on. You want someone to inherit your land and carry on the name. And all hope for that is gone. And when she says, I left full and returned empty, even though it was a famine, she had a husband and she had two sons. And two sons normally means more grandsons. And the generations continue. Now she is empty and hopeless. Her family name is going to die out and it's going to be forgotten. That's what she fears. So she says, I left a somebody, a woman with a husband and two sons. I have returned to nobody. She's lost her hope in God. Now, it's normal to feel sad sometimes. Uh, not all sadness is a bad thing. We're to weep with those who weep. We're to have godly Christ-like emotions. We have a Savior who wept. Abram, when he mourned for Sarah, he wept for her. It's appropriate. She's experienced loss, and I think that's something with our counselees. It's not wrong to feel bad. We've got a culture that says, you're feeling bad, take a pill so you won't feel bad anymore. We don't mourn as those who have no hope, but we do mourn. We do experience sadness, and when major loss takes place, that's the way God has designed us, that we would feel the sorrow of it. But then with that comes temptation. It's not wrong to be sorrowful over loss. But it is bad to be bitter. And her bitterness is not just the nondescript bitterness. It appears to me that her bitterness is really against the Lord. And in verse 13, when she's telling Orpah and Ruth to go back to Moab, she says, No, my daughters, for it's harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Is she right? She is, really. Um, atheists should not really have a problem of evil, right? If you live in a world of randomness and chance, then you really can't complain. Just the molecules didn't work out for you in this life, and you're unlucky. But to believe in the Bible, 
And especially if you're a bit Calvinistic and you understand that God works all things after the counsel of His will, when bad things happen, it ultimately, with your good theology, you realize God let this happen. That can be really tough, right? And I remember a dear friend of mine who went through a great trial where he lost his job. He was physically very ill. He had trouble with his kids. And I said, it has to be tough to believe in God's sovereignty when this is going on. And his answer was, no, it's, it, where, I, where I struggle sometimes is believing in the goodness of God. I don't doubt his sovereignty, but it's hard to believe in his goodness when I'm suffering this way. And that's right where Naomi is. So, sorry, in Isaiah it says, I am the Lord, there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. In verses 20 and 21, she says, The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me. The Almighty has afflicted me. It's interesting the, the word she uses for God here as she enters town. Uh, the Almighty is a reference to his great power. And I, I really think she's accusing God of being a bully. Little old me, poor widow that I am, how can I stand up to the Almighty One if He wants to take my husband, take my kids, take my property, remove all my hope, what can I do? I'm helpless. Now, I know Steve put her in bucket number two. I think there may be some bucket number four for Naomi. It, I guess it doesn't say when they abandoned the promised land where God had covenant with his people to go live among pagans. It doesn't say what influence she may have had in that. Although it does seem to say in verse 3, after her husband died, in verse 4, they took for themselves Moabite women. Are you supposed to take Moabite women? Not so. According to the Old Testament law, you're not supposed to intermarry with these pagans. That's part of the consequence of going to live in this place where there weren't Israelite women to marry. Did she have anything to do with that? Well, if her husband was gone, perhaps she did. Even being part of the nation. Why, why was there a famine? There was a famine under the Old Covenant, Deuteronomy 28. If the nation was not faithful, God brought the famine. In the days of the judges, there were troubles because of unfaithfulness. She, in solidarity with her own people, had been unfaithful to God. And that's why the famine occurred. Other biblical characters have struggled this way as well. It's interesting, in Genesis 42, Jacob says, everything is against me. Of course, the context is, this is when Joseph is prime minister in Egypt, and Jacob thinks he doesn't know that. He just thinks there's trouble brewing with whoever that prime minister is and his sons. Bitterness is very dangerous. Jonah after the Lord spares the Ninevites and then kills his tree. <laughs> I have good enough reason to be angry even unto death. And Naomi really is taking every opportunity she can to speak against God. Okay, and I, again, you think, if, if ever God should be done with somebody, this bitter, complaining woman, you know, just let her die. 
Does Naomi remind you of any other biblical character? Who does she remind you of? What about Job? Sometimes people just, oh, she's just bitter, merely a bitter old woman. I think she's more like Job in that here is a believer who still speaks of the Lord God, but like Job, she's been emptied of her children and her property. She understands that God is behind it, and she doesn't like it one bit. Remember what Job says to his wife? Shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? And like Job, Job felt like a target. He doesn't understand what God is doing. He says, the arrows of the Almighty, same word, are within me. They're poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. The Almighty has embittered my soul. Same language as Naomi. Same words. And as I said in the beginning, I really think Naomi here isn't just an individual. I think she here, as a real individual, is representative of the nation Israel. A woman who will talk about the Lord, who believes in the Lord, but doesn't really trust in the Lord. Even as she sends her daughters-in-law away, she's using covenant language uh, where she encourages them to go find rest, or hope they'll find rest with a husband, but in a foreign land, in a pagan land. as if a pagan god would take better care of them than the Lord would. Uh, when verse 15, one of the saddest verses in the book, when she tells Ruth, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. That's not good, is it? Essentially what Naomi is telling Ruth and Orpah to do when she tells them go back to Moab, she's saying, I don't really believe God will take care of you if you come with me. The gods of Moab will take better care of you in that pagan land. You can go marry Moabite men and have a happy life, supposedly. When the Bible says the only place there's going to be rest is going to be among the covenant people of God. To put it bluntly, she, she told her daughters-in-law to go to hell. Go to Moab. Naomi, like many depressed people, fails to recognize God's goodness to her. She claims everything is against her, but in verse 6, it says the Lord had visited his people and giving them food. The famine has ended. Perhaps there's been repentance. And one thing, it's out throughout the Bible, but especially in the book of Ruth, just nothing happens by chance. Under the old covenant, the end of a famine, the beginning of a barley harvest, this isn't just because of climate change or patterns of El Nino or El Nina, God visits his people. That's how they view it. And when you get to verse 22, after all this moaning that Naomi has done, the last phrase is leading to chapter 2, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And it's kind of like if this was a movie, it'd be like up until now there's kind of sad, somber music in a minor key. And then as you're switching over to chapter 2 and that transition, all of a sudden the screen brightens and you see the workers out in the fields doing the harvest and happy music is playing. Because after years of hunger, God has given them a great harvest. She's ignoring that. The fact in verse 19 that they traveled 60 miles or more from Moab to Bethlehem, 
Now, I, I've read the parable of the Good Samaritan, haven't you? Is travel always safe in that part of the world? Even today, right? Two women apparently traveling alone make it safely. Shouldn't she be thankful for that? No acknowledgement of God's traveling mercies. These are the days of the judges. Bad things happened to women, didn't they, back in those days? They made it. And also, the fact that the Lord God has shown Himself to be a God who cares for widows. And, and part of being in the covenant community in the Old Testament is God had made provision for widows. And I have of the verses in your notes, but you have the law where you, of, you can't cut your field twice. You leave the corners for those who are needy, for the widow, for the orphan. God's law has made provision for her and Ruth to be fed, which will be the next chapter as Ruth goes out and does that. God's law even has provision for marriage. That if no man remains in the family, then some relative could marry. And probably Naomi realizes that's there, but she probably assumed nobody would ever want to marry a Moabite woman. Little does she know. Furthermore, it says in verse 22, and Naomi returned and with her Ruth the Moabitess. Uh, she is not empty. She is not alone. And of course you keep reading and you'll realize Ruth is better than seven sons as it turns out. Even after Naomi, I mean you talk about bad counsel, okay? What does Naomi tell Orpah and Ruth? Go back to Moab. Talk about bad evangelism. Go back to Moab. You'll be taken care of there. Don't come back with me. But somehow, and the only way I figure Ruth heard about the Lord is through Naomi, the mediocre witness. In spite of her pleas, go back to your people, back to your gods. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. Where you're buried, I will be buried. May the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Not only does she have a companion, not only is this companion, interesting in chapter 2, Naomi stays home while Ruth goes out and gathers grain. And it's also through Ruth that redemption's going to come. Not just food, but at the end of the book, you've got Naomi holding the baby who's in the messianic line, looking ahead to David for the reader. No, Ruth's pretty special to have along. To say you've returned empty is not seeing what God is doing. And just the fact that God has saved this woman. Have you ever led somebody to faith in Christ? Have you ever led somebody? Isn't that thrilling to have a spiritual child like that? One of the great blessings of life is through your witness to see someone come to trust Christ. And in spite of herself, the Lord has done that. She turned from the false gods of Moab to find refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. And then also just the reality that the Lord, being a sovereign and good God who loves His people, brings good out of the calamities experienced by His people. Later, Jeremiah will write, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And again, He redeems us in spite of our sin, in spite of our failures. He is good to Israel far beyond what they deserve. I, I liked how Brian was talking yesterday how our capacity of our circuit boards, as he said, chips, whatever, our brain, hard drive, is not capable of grasping the tapestry of the plans of God 
and how what is happening to us fits into those. She doesn't realize that all of this, even what may have been her sinful errors, are going to be used, keep reading, not just to elevate her to being a somebody in town again by having a grandchild and then more generations, but her family is going to be planted smack dab in the messianic line. Amazing what God does. It's also interesting how Ruth, this girl from the pagan background, her trust in God is so great compared to that of the woman who should have known better growing up in the faith. She's going through a similar trial. She's a widow, and she's coming into town not knowing what they're going to do with her. You know, who is this woman with Naomi? What are you bringing this Moabitess into our place for? But she's the one, even as Boaz will say, who trusted in the God of Israel and sought refuge under the shadow of his wings. So, how do you help somebody like this? Our text has just ended, but what do you do when this person comes to you? Um, there's a, an example I'm going to use. There's a guy, I'm calling him Rob, and you've actually, I don't read his homework yet, but that is his actual homework. This is a guy, when he came to me, he had been severely depressed for more than two years. Most of that time, he has been unemployed, and his church leaders believe that as soon as he gets a job, that'll solve the depression. That's really the problem. Um, but he and his wife think it goes much deeper than that. They believe that this has been a problem for him before the depression, it preceded, before the unemployment, it, it preceded that. But what he finds also is the depression, the feelings of depression, the feelings of hopelessness have drained him from having the drive to go out and find a job, his wife is also concerned that he's very grumpy. He often erupts in anger at her, at the children. Uh, she wants to help him, and she really kind of has no idea how to help him. She's tried to be quiet. She's tried to correct him. She's getting nowhere. But as, as we meet and we hear Rob's story, one thing we learn about Rob is he has deep regrets about the past. And maybe the most significant event to him is that he feels like many years ago, he felt like God was calling him in a certain direction. And instead of that, he got married <laughs> and had a family and then had to provide for that family through work that wasn't where he thought God had called him. And he felt like he had missed the boat. And that because of that, he had really wrecked the possibility of having a life of significance and usefulness for the Lord. He made a wrong turn and there was no on-ramp to get back. He is also very tempted towards bitterness because he felt like in his last job, he, he was in a job where they overworked him, he got chewed up and then spit out when they didn't feel like they needed him anymore. And really, really struggling with that. So, how do you help him? Well, Naomi's story and Rob's story should stir compassion in those of us who are counseling. Um, it's not just, as Steve said, take two verses and call me in the morning. The scripture reflects, like just thinking of Proverbs 18, 14, the spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but it's for a broken spirit who can endure it. And this is one reason why 
God sees fit to make us as biblical counselors suffer quite a bit. Those in pastoral ministry. Until you've suffered, you really can't care for people like Naomi and care for people like Rob. So you look back in your own life. Why did God let this happen to me? I don't know all the reasons. I don't understand all the tapestry. But I can tell you this. Like 2 Corinthians 1 says that we who have been comforted by God are able to comfort others. And so even though I have not gone through exactly through what he's gone through, the Lord has brought suffering into my life. And this is a faint-hearted, weak person. Not an unruly person. And we need to understand how that feels. We need to have compassion for that person. A compassion for a Naomi. And then, and then to try to help him with the Word of God. And we in our own lives can be tempted sometimes to be embittered against God. We see people who are tempted where you have theological knowledge. You've heard all these things, but then when tragedy has come into your life, the concept of the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God, it seems to contradict. And we can be angry. Why me? Why is it that I never got married when I had spent my whole childhood preparing to be a mom? Why is it that the insurance didn't cover this medical procedure and now we're deeply in debt? Why is it that after working so hard, I've lost my job? And there's a little bit of Naomi in all of us sometimes. We know what's right, and there can be temptation to anger, to depression, to bitterness. Bitterness is very dangerous. Steve mentioned Psalm 73 where the man is, you know, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And, and the psalmist says, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Great trials can be great temptations. I like when Job says, I lay my hand on my mouth. He would have been better off to have done that several chapters earlier than he finally did. One person wrote, help me not to speak against God. That's an important thing. I know, I mean, like Steve talked about, there's a time when you cry out to God. Why? That's okay. The psalmists do it. But be careful how you speak to God. Don't accuse God of evil. I know the greatest trial of my life, most of you are aware, is having three sons who don't believe, adult sons. And there are thoughts that sometimes enter my mind that I can never let come out of my mouth. I do not want to dishonor the Lord. I have to repent of those thoughts. Well, why do people feel this way? Um, this is another point. I think many of us, when we think about depression, we've thought about David in Psalm 32, when I was silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Night and day your hand was heavy upon me. Sometimes it's sin. David committed adultery and murder, and he was really messed up. But it's not always sin. You have to investigate. Sometimes it is circumstances, like Psalm 73, like Psalm 42 and 43, where this individual is going through some kind of trial, some kind of separation from God. Like Naomi, life has been hard. But then bad feelings are compounded when we respond sinfully. Um, 
The topic of medicine has come up a few times. It's going to be the main topic of the ACBC conference. We, in the biblical counseling movement, have been humbled a bit over the last 20 years. If you think about an evolution of a movement that's been going on 40 years or so, that there are some people who really have medical problems that medications can help. And there could be something going along around with someone physiologically that medicine can give them aid. And we, one thing I love about what Charles Hodges says as a physician and a biblical counselor, it's a matter of freedom. It's a matter of Christian liberty whether somebody tries these medications. And also because we are not omniscient, I cannot know whether it's this person's circumstances or his sin or some combination thereof or whether his brain is going haywire. Of course, sometimes the doctors don't know either. We also know that for the great majority of people, especially the antidepressant medications, don't really seem to make a change. And Skip talked about the side effects. But I can also say that for most people, these bad feelings are spiritual in nature. And even if there is something physical, there's also a spiritual issue going on. That's where we can help them as we approach them with compassion. And for someone like this, what what I've found, and it's true in many different areas, but for as I was listening to, to Rob describe a situation, a person who is in despair, a person who is bitter, is, is almost like even the garden, that she was lied to by the devil, she believed the lie, and she did wrong. And as I, I talked to Rob, I realized that in his confused thinking, which was part of the challenge of the whole thing, is his mind just all over the place, but in his, his thinking, he was really believing lies from the devil. We talked about it some in the case, and what you have actually in the handout that Craig gave you today is what he actually wrote, other than changing the name, I haven't changed anything. And why am I in bitterness? Why am I in despair? How am I failing to deal with the past in a godly way? And these are the things he said about himself, the lies he's believed, and then the answers from the Scriptures. I believe I've messed up God's plan for my life as if God had no control over the direction of my life. I've thwarted God's plan for my life. I'm now living out God's plan B. Any of you ever think that way? I married the wrong person. I had one too many kids. (laughs) Didn't have enough kids. Went to the wrong college. Made the wrong major. Took the wrong job. Let that opportunity slip by. Well, he had good answers, didn't he? Well, one is I'm thinking too much about myself. But Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. He's the one who leads me. Am I smarter than he is? Even into the valley of dark shadows. And then his purpose for me, referring back to Titus 2.14, is not my success. And that was actually an idol for this guy. He wanted to be successful in certain ways. But God's purpose is that I would be successful, that other people could see. Christ gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then God works through secondary causes, like in Joseph's life. And even though what happened to Joseph with his brothers seemed like a bad plan to Joseph at the time, being cast into a pit, then imprisoned after being a slave, God was working out his purpose. And then I'm I'm treading on dangerous ground when I question what God is doing in my life. He quotes from Romans 9, 
if God is the potter, should the thing molded say to the molder, why have you made me thus? Then the second lie he's telling himself is no good can come out of this. And Joseph answering his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. He works all things after the counsel of his will. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You see what he's doing in this assignment? And by the way, there are lots of counselees who could use this assignment, some of whom are sitting here. What are the lies I keep telling myself? And then how does the word of God answer those lies? And for Rob, when his thinking was so muddled, his thinking was so, you know, a depressed person sometimes has a hard time just kind of putting together a sequence of thoughts, even thinking what he's supposed to do. Even the exercise of writing it down, reading it over. Uh, Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, talking about Psalm 42, uh, said we need to stop listening to ourselves we need to stop, start talking to ourselves. When you're listening to yourself and you're grieving over the past, you're bitter about the past, you're listening to yourself, you're listening to lies, and you're manufacturing those in your heart, you need to talk to yourself with the truth from the Word of God. And this is what Rob was doing, and it's showing, again, I think Rob's a lot like Naomi. Naomi knew the Lord, but she wasn't talking to herself the way she should have been. I am of no use any longer for the Lord. I'm no good. God is the potter, I am the clay, I'll be submissive to his will. But then God works all things together for those whom he loves. Not one of his promises will fail. Psalm 139, he made me the way I am. Every good gift is from above. Uh, I'm being self-focused again. It's about God's glory. And then the fourth one was a really big deal to him. He felt like he was going to remain in misery um, because of his disobedience. Again, I made the wrong turn, or a couple of wrong turns. There's no way back onto the highway of the will of God. But the scripture says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ has cleansed me. And these afflictions aren't just because of my sin. God who loves me has put them into my life to purify me. 1 Peter 1, trials to refine us. James 1, and surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, on my handout, there are many other, and I've just listed all these lies. I can't expound each of these lies, but these are the things you'll hear people implicitly saying, and Naomi was saying things like this. God is against me, like an angry judge, like Job. He's shooting his arrows at me, questioning the goodness of God. When Let no one say when he's tempted, he's being tempted by God, James 1. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. I have every right to be bitter against God. God has been good to you. <laughs> I need people to make me happy. That's a big one, isn't it? Curse, Jeremiah 17, Cursed is the one who trusts in man and makes the flesh his strength. He'll be like the bush in the desert. Blessed is the one whose trust is in the Lord. He'll be like the tree planted by the rivers of water. If you believe that people must do something, uh, you're going to be bitter for a long time. I need a spouse. I need a child. I need my spouse to change. God is the one who gives us rest. Or I need my circumstances to change. Paul says, I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Very often you'll hear people say, this situation is more than I can bear. And it's good when you know the scriptures, and when I say that, you're all thinking, right, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I know that one. But you'll hear people say, this temptation was more than I could handle, that's why I did this. Or this, I don't think I can go on another day. Even the lady that Steve talked about says, I don't know if I can live another year feeling the way I do. 
Well, God has promised to provide you a way of escape. God who has made you knows what you can take and will not test you beyond that. Now, you have responsibility to find that way of escape and to seek after Him, but if you do seek after Him, what He has allowed in your life is not more than you can bear. And then, I have messed up God's plan for my life. That was a big thing about Rob. I'll never get out of debt. Or the girl who got pregnant out of wedlock. No man will ever want to marry me now. I wandered to Moab. <laughs> I messed up my life. I'll just kind of live out my days. No. Ephesians 2.10 says that he who saved you by grace through faith has prepared in advance good works for you to do for his glory even in spite of your sin. And, and that's the wonder of the book of Ruth, by the way, right? How gracious God is. It's not just an external... I mean, Naomi does badly, and yet God still redeems. Even when you've failed, you had the abortion, the baby out of wedlock, you fell into sin, which is shameful. As God still showed mercy to this family, and the book ends with Naomi holding her grandson, who really is effectively her son to carry on the family's name, who's going to lead to David, Obed-Jesse David. That is how merciful in God is. He brings good out of it. Then you'll hear somebody say, I'm just no good. Okay, we agree with you on that one. <laughs> you need to realize that. What's the best thing you can say about yourself? I am the chief of sinners. There has been given to me a righteousness not of my own, obtained by keeping the law, but the righteousness which comes from God by faith. My standing is not in my career accomplishments. It is not in the positions I hold, the wealth, the car, the house, even the spiritual attainments of office in the church or something like that. My standing is a perfect standing given me by Christ. Of myself, I am a worthless wretch. This is opposite of the self-esteem movement, right? But that's a good standing and it can't be improved upon. Then another one that will come up, and this was something with him, well, perhaps I'm not a Christian at all. Maybe just because I'm such a wretch and so miserable and you know, I'm grumpy with my kids, I'm grumpy with my wife, maybe I'm not even saved. Now, I'm not going to discount the fact that we have people who aren't saved who come in and get saved, and I'm really happy for that to happen. But oftentimes, real Christians struggle with that. And I'll start asking questions. Is, who does Jesus He's God the Son. Why did He come to the world? He came to the world to save sinners like me. Why did He die on the cross? He bore my sin on that cross. And did He stay dead? No, He's raised from the dead. Do you believe He saves all who call upon Him? And it's having a, that person giving him the opportunity to affirm the truth he knows and really believes. No one can say Jesus is Lord except that the Spirit of God enables Him. So you get back giving him a chance instead of speaking his doubt to speaking his faith. Remind him of God's promises. Remind him of God's character. Uh, because the thinking can be so muddled in the person who's bitter, I think memorizing Scripture, writing things down, reading them over, forcing yourself to you know, write down the promise that God will never leave you nor forsake you. The hope you have that these trials today are light and momentary compared to the glory yet to come. That God is using these trials to refine you. If this person just sits and thinks, their mind is going to drift back to, back to the lies. 
They need to be reminded and sometimes forced. It can, that's where the spouse can help. Can we read the verses you've written down or memorized? Or for my friend, I had him, he took that wonderful list that you just got. You need to read that over some. Another assignment is for him to remember God's past faithfulness. And this has also come up in some of the other talks. Uh, in the Psalms, this happens. When things are really awful, what do they do? They recall what God has done in the past. Psalm 78, verse 12. He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. In Psalm 77, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Remember those days when God used you. Remember God's past goodness and faithfulness to you. He who did it before will do it again. Remember when He saved you. The life you lived in slavery. And you know, hear the testimony. Tell me how God saved you. Tell me your testimony. Thanks be to God. Aren't you glad He didn't leave you in the life you were once in? This life may be hard, but it's still better than the one you left. And then... What Naomi totally failed to do is recall the goodness of God to you right now. Concrete assignment. I want you to write down five things a day for which you're thankful to God. And I want you to come back next week with at least 35 things you've written down. I mean, sitting next to him, kind of like Ruth next to Naomi, here sitting next to him is his dear wife who has stuck with him, even though he's been kind of a pain to live with for quite a while. And she would just do, almost do anything to help him, including dragging him against his will to counseling. How blessed he is to have someone who still loves him. Doesn't he see what the love of Christ is like to have a wife who will still love him even though he's been such a grump and still cares about him? And his children still respect him and some of his children are converted. And also, like Naomi coming back, she was in a covenant community that takes care of widows if they're following the law of God. And there was a guy, Boaz, who was following the law of God, and through him, Naomi wasn't going to starve, and even more good things were going to happen. In the same way, you're part of a church where you are loved and cared for, and they're not going to let you be homeless. They're not going to let your family, your children starve, because you're in that community, in the New Covenant. God has so richly blessed you, and on and on and on it goes, but consider these things, of all the blessings you've received, and then kind of applying Philippians 4 back to forcing yourself to think about these things. Looking at your thankful list. Looking at your lies and truths. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there's any excellence in anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Stop listening to yourself again, right? Stop listening to the lies that just are coming naturally when you're in despair. Through the Word of God. Through the truth. Talk to yourself. These truths you believe. Build up your faith. Steve mentioned last night, watch out for going to idols for comfort. And then there may be a place to help this person gently to repent of his sin. If I were counseling Naomi, I'd say, Naomi, I think you probably need to seek God's forgiveness for speaking against him. Maybe at the end of the book it would have been easier. Are you sorry you said the Almighty has dealt badly with you? now that you're holding this baby, and you see, the, isn't God really good? Aren't you ashamed of saying things against him? Perhaps you should declare that to your other people, address everyone involved. <laughs> what I can say, in the case of Rob, I thank God 
that over time his thoughts became more focused and biblical? Did he work through the bitterness and the anger over losing his job in the past? Even though those who wronged him did not seek his forgiveness, God gave him a forgiving attitude in his heart. The angry outbursts at home diminished. He started actually reading the scriptures again with his family. And he became more energized in pursuit of employment. And it's interesting, in, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 2, and we actually brought this up with him, um, where Naomi, Ruth's going out, Ruth says, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of corn after one in whose sight I may feign favor. Ruth needed a Boaz who would let her glean so she could eat. She needed someone to show favor to her so she could have employment and food. said, pray for that. Pray that you might find favor in the eyes of an employer and might get a job. And God in his providence did that. And we're very thankful to him for that. So, to summarize, sometimes we can look at the past and be tempted to think that God is against us. Sometimes we can be tempted to tell ourselves lies that even because of our own sinful failures in bucket number four, we've kind of knocked ourselves off the train track of life and we can never get back on. Sometimes we can even be tempted to be bitter against God and speak against Him. There is one irrefutable truth that God is for you. And that is that He sent His Son into the world. Christ who suffered all things for us he rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was horribly afflicted, though He was innocent. He emptied Himself. Naomi thought she was empty. Jesus emptied Himself for us. And now He is the bread of life for His people. He feeds His people. He cares for His people. And we know if God is for us, who can be against us? That takes faith. In the great trials of life, if God has given His Son for me, no matter what the trial may be, it may be to chasten me, it may be to glorify Himself, the tapestry is one I will not fully understand. But as we walk by faith and not by sight, we trust that He is working things together for good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for a beautiful story like the story of Naomi in the book of Ruth. We confess as we look at her, we can't do so in judgment, we do so sympathizing. We too are so weak, we too believe lies we tell ourselves sometimes. We too don't appreciate all you do for us. We thank you for your great mercy to us, especially in Christ. Lord, help us in our own lives to put the past in its place and to realize you are sovereign over the past, the present, and the future, and you work it for good. And even like Joseph's brothers, when we do the wrong thing. You can turn that for your good, for your glory, and even our good. Help us to help those who are hurting in this way. Help us to direct them to you. Help us to speak your word and your truth to ourselves and to be thankful people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2014 IBCD all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.